It may be invisible to some or ever present to others, but trauma entangles us all. Welcome to Traumatize, brought to you by Network for Victim Recovery of DC. Traumatize is a podcast that creates space and conversations to untangle the societal knots that keep us from addressing trauma after crime. For you, we want this podcast to be an experience, one where you leave understanding how you can be a crossing point to minimize the deeply painful and costly consequences of trauma, no matter who you are. Welcome back to Traumatize, where we believe trauma is a common thread of the human connection. I'm Bridget Stumpf, and I'm here, as always, with my co-host, Lindsay Silverberg. Hi, everybody. In today's episode, we continue shining a spotlight on unsung heroes, and we're honored to have one of them with us. Our guest is a proud son of El Paso, Texas, and was raised along the U.S.-Mexico border. He has had the privilege of working in his hometown for member Congresswoman Veronica Escobar as her chief of staff since 2019. He brings nearly 15 years of invaluable experience in Congress, having navigated complex national and local issues. Join us today as we explore our guest's valuable insight on vicarious trauma and stay tuned for a conversation that unveils the extraordinary work and challenges faced by unsung heroes like our guest. Welcome, Eduardo Lerma. Thank you for having me today. Yeah, so Eduardo, we're so excited to speak with you today. And I think it would be helpful to just paint uh, the contextual landscape for listeners who are thinking, why are we talking to a staffer of an elected representative? Like, where does that fit into this season of Traumatize? And I'll just let you know that when Lindsay and I were kind of thinking about the guests that we wanted to have conversations with, we really thought that those in your role play almost this invisible bridge between our elected leaders and the people. And often you are on the front lines when you're receiving calls from constituents, their stories, hearing about their needs, and trying to be responsive to those. We know that staffers are often at the epicenter of where policy and law is sometimes failing or even hurting people, and you have to be the ones to hear about that. Yet rarely are you recognized in all the ways that you move public policy forward and truly impact people's lives. So with that, we're excited to have this conversation, and Lindsay is going to kick it off just sort of getting more information about what does your day-to-day look like. Yeah, so I think as a chief of staff for a U.S. representative, The work that you do involves addressing the needs and concerns of the constituents that you serve. So can you tell us a little bit about how staffers intersect with community members and the expectations that the public may have for you in that role? Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's that's a great question. We, you know, there's two ways we intersect with the, well, multiple ways we intersect with the public. We have our DC office and we have our our home district office and they're very, we all have the same mission, the mission of our office, our congressional office, and the creed that the congresswoman has, has always told us to follow is we lead by love. And so what that means, compassion, community, and conscious. And for our D.C. office, we meet with our constituents. They come and lobby us. They agree with our policies. They don't agree with our policies. They want to be heard. And that's their right. And that is something that we we take very seriously. We very rarely if ever, deny a constituent a meeting with our staffer or with the congresswoman, unless it's, you know, an, a, a, something extraordinary. Our role as staffers and, and as public servants overall is to listen to our constituents, listen to what they're telling us, 
respond to their mail. We get tons and hundreds and hundreds of mail, uh, pieces of mail from constituents writing about any topic. Sometimes it's a it's a campaign email from from somebody. It's the Save the Puppies Act. I'm, I'm making that piece of legislation up, but you know, and they 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 all signed up, and it's all the same form letter. But it's four or five hundred people that that decided to to be part of this in our community, and they they deserve a response, so we respond to them. Sometimes it's people asking for help, and then our district office, our number one constituent tool locally is casework helping people just get the benefits that they've earned, that they've deserved, whether it's a veteran that, that's fought overseas and now they're they're looking to get benefits from the PACT Act or Social Security recipient who doesn't feel like they're getting everything they've deserved over the years because they've put in. So we deal with that. We've had a lot of success with folks on that level and, and a lot of great stories that we've uh, engaged on. And then there's the issues that people just kind of come to us for because they have nowhere else to go. I leave overseas. I'm going to Spain in two days. I realize my passport <laughs> is is expired and I need it. How can I help or how can you help? And we help them. We try to get them an emergency appointment with the passport office locally and, and get it same day. Sometimes we can't. Sometimes we can. Other ones, ideas or, or issues is our hospitals are full. This is 20. This is very real in 2020. Our hospitals are full. We don't have any more recourse. We are going to put people on the streets. We need federal help. Help us. And that was that was a real thing that happened. We we had to to manage that. And you know, El Paso was the epicenter of the COVID outbreak for for quite some time. We we had to go through some extraordinary issues to alleviate that. And I think for us, it's setting clear expectations with constituents right off the offset of what we can and cannot do. And we folks think we can move mountains. That's not necessarily the case. We can't just have a magic wand and say, oh, here's your, here's the money that you think you were owed, but their casework may not reflect what the reality is. And oftentimes they think their, their view is always right, but oftentimes <laughs> gets misconstrued, but it's our, it's our job to help them navigate, say, look, this might not be working through this way, but we could try this. And oftentimes we we succeed that way as well. And then we have our we have our field team that that engages with folks from community meetings, city council, rotary clubs, school, school pep rallies, <laughs> everything just kind of talking about what our offices does and how we can help them and help uh, constituents overall. I was laughing, Eduardo, because I recently this year had to contact my member of Congress to help with my passport. And it was very lovely. <laughs> but, you know, you all do work some magic in just in terms of the depth and breadth of sort of issues that you get tossed at you from yeah. folks. And it's pretty incredible the amount of work that you all are able to do on behalf of the constituents that you all serve. Yeah. That's exactly what I was thinking. I was like, wow, th those are like a diverse set of needs that are all coming at you. Some being like, you know, sort of compounded by the time stressor. And Eduardo, your boss has really been a champion of many issues. And I actually kind of thematically heard her and how you were talking about your own role. You know, she's talked about centering compassion and, and humanizing sort of the issues. And I, I sort of sense that in the way you're talking about how you think about your job. You're talking about expectation setting, which is really one of these key pillars of how do we provide trauma responsive care to whoever it is that we're intersecting with. And I just wanted, you know, to give folks some some background here, you know, your boss not only made history as the first woman elected to represent El Paso and 
you know, she's really the first of two Latinas from Texas to serve in Congress. Congresswoman Escobar has faced pretty daunting challenges, I would say, just in her first year of elected office. And you know this firsthand. On August 3rd, 2019, I think she was maybe 216 days in office. Yeah. Pretty fresh. And you all directly experienced the consequences of our nation's growing gun violence epidemic when a domestic terrorist killed 23 people and injured 22 more. And it's actually um, quite rare that this sort of impact that this particular issue had on your team was captured live as um, Vice was filming sort of a separate issue, your your boss's work around immigration and the border crisis. And you see her learn about the shooting in El Paso. And in this, you see her responding within minutes and also publicly within hours. And we know because the work we do and the conversations that we we kind of bring together here in this podcast, that grief is a part of the shared human experience. Yet many of us are not prepared to see that type of profound loss in our lifetimes. And this is exactly what is required of you, of your team, of your boss, when these incidents happen in your district. I'm really curious to know, one, kind of how did that impact you all, but also how did that experience shape your understanding of the trauma-informed care that you should always be offering to the constituents, regardless of the issue they're kind of reaching out to you for? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think for us, we, and going back to the, the Vice News piece, we learned about it because the constables that we use for security at our events were called away and they said, we got to go. I'm sorry. And we didn't understand exactly what was happening at the time. And so we had a staffer inform the congresswoman in the middle of the event. Nothing prepares you as a staffer, as a member, as a just a person to have to respond to a, a mass shooting, let alone nothing prepares you as a chief of staff to lead an office, both guide your member and guide a staff of 18 in response to a mass shooting. And I, you know, the first day I was just getting updates from folks. I was talking to the FBI. I was talking to the local PD. I was talking to several other folks, learning about death counts, being the one to tell the boss, look, we've lost this many people. This is, you know, these are the ages. This is what we think what's happening. Yes, they've caught the guy. And, you know, just talking through the staff, we had all staff meeting that day to talk about the situation. I flew down the next morning, 6 a.m. I got there at whatever time, nine o'clock, went straight into work mode with the congressman on that Sunday and started to to respond, started to to engage with the community, with our local electeds, get a situational awareness of the, of the, the issue, understand who the shooter was, the domestic terrorist, understand why he did it at that time. It was still up in the air. And put a whole view response to this, making sure our hospitals had the resources they need, making sure that our office helped set up the National Compassion Fund and make sure that at that time, working with various federal agencies to make sure that the victims didn't have to pay for or the, the deceased didn't have to pay for the funerals and let them know that that was something available to them. But it was also personal for me because, you know, it was a very it's a very di- different response to a natural disaster. And the hurt is different. The, the loss, you know, everyone experiences loss. But I talked to some some chiefs who had to deal with wildfires out in California and, and floods and, and the plains. But I also had to talk to got calls from chiefs that had to deal with mass shootings. And they had to and I got advice from them kind of understanding what I needed to do in getting the office out of this and getting us all out intact. 
you know, I had some experience in college. There's a program called One in Four, the One in Four program. Mm-hmm. I, we opened our chapter in at Santa Clara University. You know, one thing I learned from there was just people who have gone through a traumatic experience, gone through a shooting, anything traumatic, is let them have first choices. They need to make the choices themselves, and you need to give them. They need to feel like they're back in control of their life. And I think that was a big lesson for me was just understanding that, look, we're going to have our vigils, we're going to have our meetings, our roundtables, our press conferences, but then we're going to have to talk to the victims and we're going to have to talk to the families of those that lost folks. And what do we do there? What is our role as a public servant? We don't want to be the member that just barges in and says, oh, hi, we wanted to get their permission. We wanted to go visit them at the hospital. And they were so happy that we did because they don't feel heard. And they didn't feel like they haven't had much choices yet. And they had they got to choose that we get to visit them. So that was, you know, it was hard because we met various victims and got to talk to the families, got to talk to families of the deceased. And we, I think baseline is recognize that we were all hurting. Myself, it was very personal. That was the Walmart my parents would shop at. Usually on Saturdays, there were victims that, that could have been my parents. And then going to... The memorial, listening to folks, people not understanding why they hate, why there's hate. For us, that was that was probably the hardest thing was we're Americans, we're people, we're part of this community. Veterans who were Latinos, Chicanos, not understanding why why they fought. It's still very raw for some of us. <clears throat> and going back to what you were saying, Lindsay, the, the national rhetoric around this issue is is decisive, divisive rather. And we've seen mass shootings after mass shootings after mass shootings. And every one of those after August 3rd, I've tried to help that team out. One of the first things that an office did for us was from a neighboring district was send staff to our office. So our teams didn't have to take on the calls of families crying, of people of people calling to say that, get ready for the next one. We want to kill you, you spicks. So there was all of that happening all at the same time while trying to respond to a very fluid situation. But we I work for a member that, going back to our, our creed of our office, is lead by love. And that's what we try to protect. And that's what we, as our office, try to portray to the rest of the world. Is there's something beyond the root causes of hate, and that's love. And let's get to that. Well, first of all, thank you for being willing to not only talk about what it meant to show up for so many in this moment, and to have a role to play, to champion for them. I'm so grateful that one, you had the opportunity to understand how we can be supportive for those that have experienced trauma, that you had that insight, that you had that experience. And I'm also sort of learning, you know, when we thought about folks like you that sort of sit on the front lines of responding to these crises, I'm realizing that there's a compounding factor here when it is that close to home. As you described, your own communities impact the fear and reality of your own parents and just what was lost. Like there's just so much loss, not only of the actual victims themselves, but of hopes and dreams, right? There's there's these kind of psychosocial losses that we go through when communities experience this type of trauma. And so I'm just really profoundly grateful that you're willing to kind of share how personal that was for you. And I imagine that that your team and your boss is 
really grateful that they had you during these moments. But what we know is being in proximity to that, particularly when it's personal, the way you described it, has a consequence on the person that is expected to show up and hold space in all of these moments. And that's what this conversation is about is like, how do you do that? Right. And I'll kind of just share, we know that your boss has worked to pass some common sense gun reforms that would allow us to close the gun show loophole, requiring some universal background checks, banning assault weapons. And I believe she even co-sponsored the Bipartisan Background Checks Act of 2019 that ultimately passed the House, but hasn't had any movement to be passed by the Senate. And policymaking involves these kind of intricate processes where sometimes like matter how deeply personal the issue is, like what we're talking about and, and the impact access to firearms has on safety and mass violence, sometimes the goals can't be met for reasons beyond your control, right? And when faced with constant limitations and meeting constituents' needs, how does your office approach communication management around disappointment, whether that's internally with the yeah. you know with the the team that's responding, or maybe even interactions you're having with the community that's kind of looking to you to solve these problems? Three weeks after the shooting in El Paso, we had a community town hall on what is gun violence. Well, one, the congresswoman had the judiciary come down, judiciary committee come down and have a hearing on white supremacy and hate. And and as Democrats were in charge, we were able to do that. No Republicans joined, of course, not to get too political or anything, I'm sorry. So we had a really great hearing there in El Paso three weeks after the shooting to make a statement. So this was a white supremacist who came to kill Latinos. A week after that, we had a hearing or a, a community town hall on resources for the community, still grieving. What is Congress doing? What can we do? And why your voice matters? And that's what we sort of wrapped that up. But, you know, we had Office of Emergency Management there. We had crisis intervention teams there. Uh, National Compassion Fund was there. So they could all talk. And we, it was insanely well attended. A lot of folks just had questions of why, you know, why did this happen? But going to your question on why can't, I, I think we keep coming back to your voice matters, your vote matters, and civil engagement is critical to getting the changes that we need. After the Uvalde shooting in uh, Uvalde, Texas, we were able to get something passed and the Safer Communities Act, but it's it's not enough. I mean, it was it's just, to be fair, it's, it's just money for helping kids get through mass shootings. That's that's what that bill is. It's not it's it's not bipartisan background checks. It's not restricting AR15s the sales of. This is somebody who grew up around guns. I, I grew up around what guns. It's uh, my I have a lot of friends that are gun owners, but they all tell me there are people who should not own weapons. Let us let us get by these safely and licensed. I mean this just it's not an issue. It should not be an issue. But how we inform the community of our of what we're doing in Congress and with the things that we're working on. We have regular town halls with folks, telephone town halls. We reach a large audience. We have it bilingual. It's 85% Latino community. And we have them every quarter with folks, broad range of issues, a lot of casework. A lot of folks want to come in and talk about their, their issues with us. And then we have localized neighborhood community meetings. We partner with our local city council. And when they're doing their, their neighborhood meetings, we will go, the congresswoman will go, and of course, there's social media, newsletters. We have an, an amazing digital team that is constantly putting out Instagram, 
trying to get the youth engaged on on these things. And so, you know, that whole holistic approach to, to public service, I think, is something that we've been very successful at and we want to continue to expand on. Yeah. I mean, it's so clear just how thoughtful you all are and the care that you take into making sure that you really are leading with that charge of love. You know, given the intense nature of our sort of socio-political, economical environment and landscape, political offices, as you've mentioned, receive numerous calls with messages and requests from constituents who may bring forth deeply personal and probably often traumatic experiences, which is requiring a lot of the staff you lead to really engage in a nuanced approach. And we know that the feelings of helplessness can increase the chances of experiencing what we refer to as vicarious trauma. What are some of the strategies that you use as a leader and that your team uses to receive these stories of trauma? So for almost any congressional office, the people who answer the phones are usually our interns. Both offices have interns. Almost every congressional office will have a cadre of interns. And we, it's our job to make sure that they feel comfortable answering the phones, depending on whatever type of caller will come and call both offices. My rule for any interns is the moment that somebody says something uh, racist or cusses, you can hang up on them. But going back to the original of service, people just want to be heard. They want to, it doesn't matter if they're calling in from El Paso, Texas or rural Tennessee, and they just want to complain that Joe Biden is blah, 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 blah. They just want to be heard. And after a while, they just get tired (laughs) and we'll just say bye. But it takes a toll. And I try to, you know, one thing our our staff assistant who manages the interns, I say, you know, make sure we cycle through on how many folks are are taking calls sometimes. Sometimes we don't get a lot of calls for the day. Sometimes if there's a big piece of legislation, we will get slammed. You know, I was here for the ACA, the Affordable Care Act debates, and the entire country was calling in. I mean, it was we had to put our calls to call forward. Just who we couldn't keep up with the, the the load. But, you know, I think for us, it's understanding that there's resources as staffers. We have the Office of Employee Assistance. They're great at making sure that staffers can get the counseling they need. We have a 24-hour hotline. You know, after January 6th, they really revamped the mental health awareness on the Hill. It was a very traumatic experience for all of us that were were in and around the Capitol that day, myself included. And we uh, makes that very unique is a lot of victims of crimes and violent crimes don't go back to their scene. We went back the same night, you know, and that was we had to work through the night. We next day we came back and then day after this entire complex became a military base, basically, with patrols, everything, 24 hours. So it was very it was very jarring in that aspect. And, you know, for lack of better turns, not to use a cuss word, but it was, a, it was, a, it was kind of jarring. <laughs> but um, so we, we as staffers kind of, oftentimes when you're in these, these situations, you kind of detach yourself from emotion and just try to work through the, uh, the current situation, our office, El Paso, we have a military, we have a huge military presence in, in El Paso, Fort Bliss, Texas. And it was the, it was the site of the first Afghan refugees during Operation Allies Refuge. So we just got slammed with casework help, both this office and El Paso or in our Paso office of help my friend, help my friend. They're at the gate right now. Or people would call us from Afghanistan saying, 
at the gate, tell the Marines that who I am, just I was a translator and I'm going to die if I get cut by the Taliban. You felt helpless. I had friends that, that were in the military that would call me and say, I served with this guy. He's, he's just outside Bagram. He could get to Hamid Karzai. Eduardo, please help me. Desperate. You try your best to manage that. We helped some people out. We weren't able to get everyone, obviously. And that, that kind of stings because you, you know there's good people that probably are going to be killed by the Taliban or whatever the Taliban, especially for women. Obviously, that was that was a big thing. Was get my get my daughter out. She doesn't have a future here. I'll stay and deal with them, but get my daughter out. And oftentimes, we were helpless. We felt helpless, rather. But we all of that. Going back to your original question of how do we take care of ourselves? It's 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 the resources. Making sure that we talk to each other. After January sixth, there was an informal group of of Hill staffers that would meet probably once a quarter to just talk about our trauma, about our you know, things that that we facilitated by somebody from OEA, just so we didn't feel alone. So yeah, that was probably a little overshare there, but not at all. I mean, listen, I having lived right near the Capitol at that point, and I was within the um, National Guard kind of bubble, and having looking out my window to see dozens of armed people with huge, you know, assault weapons. It was incredibly jarring to not to both feel over policed and unsafe in, you know, sort of the same space. So I can only imagine what that must have been like to have real concern for your safety in that moment. Right. And those that you work with and then have to be asked to go back to a place where, you know, that like people were there to try and attack you all. Yeah, no, you know, it was, it was uh I wrestled for a long time to kind of understand what happened that day. And I remember three weeks after I took my family to Gettysburg and I wanted them to understand, you know, they were too young then, but I wanted them to understand that we can overcome a lot of things. And one thing I wanted to, to frame because I don't, this is very unique to, to the Hill was COVID-2020 response for a body that was, that is intrinsically in person going completely remote while keeping up with the demands of a pandemic, while keeping up with your own well-being and separating and creating an office that should not, should not be remote because you have to negotiate in person was insanely hard. Creating the the drawdown plans of when we're going to go, but also just keeping up the demands of the constituent. I was talking about hospitals, people on the street, et cetera, dealing with a migrant surge at the same time with border patrol needs. I think all of that being said, you know, as people don't, Think of us when they call in, they don't see a lot of aspects of the work of a congressional staffer or a public servant in this realm. And there are a lot of different crises that we have to respond to for our communities. I think El Paso, our community is very unique and that we've had several, but, you know, I think they don't, the breadth of our expertise and our willingness to help a community, I think is, is unbound. Yeah, that's really clear in, in this conversation. And Eduardo, just reflecting on, I'm trying to process the entire, um, dialogue that we just had, not only all of the times that you've had to show up for your community, and again, in this almost invisible way, right? Part of your role is that, not that credit matters when you're trying to make change, it doesn't, but the folks that get sort of both the credit and the blame are are the leaders, right? The Your boss. And yet here are these team members that are really a critical part of making all of those parts move in such this sort of unsung hero way, which is why we really wanted to talk to you. 
you know, I also have two kids. I know you have two kids and you're talking about taking them to Gettysburg and wanting them to sort of understand like we we can thrive through adversity. This is actually a really key concept in the discussions that we have, Lindsay and I, around resiliency, because we know a shared human experience often is experiencing trauma. So how do we actually build protective factors into our lives, into our kids' lives to be prepared to face adversity and, and to survive it and ultimately thrive? And, you know, when we think about resiliency, I, I immediately go to like, you've been doing this work for a little bit of time now and you've you've had a lot personally and also that you've had to sort of professionally show up in and what we know about resiliency is that we often build an ability to have a protective factor against vicarious trauma when we sense meaning making and purposefulness in the work that we do and what you led your team through as a public servant you shared with us about what you do all the time in your role I really want you to just sort of close out by sharing with us, like, what gives you a sense of fulfillment? Like, why continue to do this for your community, for your team? You know, I've been on the Hill for 16 years, started under the Bush administration, seen the House go back and forth, Senate, that was on the Senate side for a few years, back and forth. If there aren't people on either party willing to engage in this type of work with the mindset of, our constituents should come first, then this place will just, you'll see what happens on January 6th again and again. So there has to be a safety net for folks because there is underlying current in the national dialogue that is very troublesome. And I think there are people, Hill staffers, public servants that I think want to be on the Hill, want to outlast because we think there's a lot of important work to be done, myself included. Working for my boss, working for the congresswoman, my dream was to be a chief. I always wanted to be a chief. I wanted to be a chief for a Latina from the Southwest. Then I got this opportunity to work for my hometown member who is a Latina and who her and I have just the same shared values. And, you know, I get to go home, work for my community. My dad, who's a veteran, calls me all the time about his VA benefits, his casework, he says he's the most troublesome constituent, and there's there's a whole host of of issues. Not a lot of staffers get to get to ever work for their hometown member, let alone at the at the senior level like myself. So I think there's there's just the self reward. It would take a lot for me to to remove myself from from this place. Also, I just I love public service. I mean the the amount of education you get here from dealing with very traumatic issues to just the rewarding of seeing historic events happen. The Pope, ACA, presidents, you get to be exposed to things that most folks probably don't get to in, in their lifetime. And the people that you work with, I think you become very close to because you have the shared knowledge base, but also shared traumatic events. You know, our, I'll share the example of, of my art director of operations through August 3rd, she found her husband and, you know, she, he was a reporter and she was our director of ops. I brought, I flew her down from El Paso because our district office needed team, needed some relief. And she found her husband that way. And they're getting, or not husband, fiance, they're getting married in April, you know, and I think there are bright spots in the darkest times. And I think we, you know, we got to always remember that, that there's always something better down the road too, if you fight for it and if you work for it. And that's why I'm here. We are just so incredibly grateful that you are joining us for season two of Traumatize. As you listen to season two, please subscribe, rate, 
and review the Traumatized podcast wherever you listen. And Eduardo, we cannot thank you enough for taking the time to talk with us. This has been you and the folks that you work with are true un- unsung heroes. And we really value like just the vulnerability and the willingness. The work you do is beautiful and it makes a difference. And so we're really grateful for you spending the time with us. Absolutely. Thank you. This episode of Traumatize is over, but this podcast is just one of our many resources. NVRDC welcomes all survivors of crime and their supporters. So please visit us at nvrdc.org to learn more about how to access our trauma education and how to partner with us to create survivor-defined justice.